Good morning, church. One more time. Good morning, church. Today's going to be, already is a great day. It's going to continue to be great. I believe that. Um, I want to jump right into the word of the Lord today. If you'll stand to your feet. Does this get any bigger? There we go. Today we start a new series called Haunted House. And we are discussing fear. When we live in fear, we, we become like a haunted house. We become stuck inside with the shutters drawn, haunted by fear that jumps out at every corner. Fear makes the church an inward-focused house rather than an outward-focused sanctuary. We can become dim, dark, and closed off, the opposite of what the church should be, the opposite of what you should be. In this series, my goal is in our time together to expose fear, to activate faith, and release freedom. Is that all right? Anybody in the house ready to let fear go? A few of us. Okay, some of you are thinking, I ain't scared. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. You don't have to be scared. But let me just tell you that I'm, I'm pretty sure we have all at one time or another been wrapped up in terrifying fear of some sort. You know what I'm talking about. Like waiting for that phone to call, ring, waiting for that, that thing to come in the mail, that bill to come in the mail waiting for that relationship to dissolve. We, we understand what it means to walk in fear. And, and I just believe that over the next, the next few weeks that we're in this series, Haunted House, that there's gonna be a shift take place. And the people that, that latch on to what the Lord is, is doing here, I believe that there are new businesses that are gonna rise up from among us because the fear to move forward has been keeping us back, but it's going to be gone by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I believe that new investments are going to cause you to become a king in the kingdom, to, to finance through the marketplace what the Lord wants to do in his kingdom. How many know that, that God is not against money? Amen? He doesn't want his people broke. I, I'm not... I don't know that I'm a prosperity preacher or not, but here's what I know that I, I'm not one of those people who believe that to serve Jesus, you have to be poor. I don't think God gets glory from that. I think he can be in your poverty too. He can be in your wealth and riches. So if you can have both, hey, I choose. There are new dynamics in your home that are about to spring up the things that you've been praying for, for those releases to happen. But you've been afraid to extend your heart, to extend your trust again to that person. The Lord is bringing healing from fear. I want to take you to a block of text that I've spent, uh, gosh, a number of, a lot of number of hours with throughout the past couple of weeks. And it's Matthew chapter 8. Um, Matthew is one of the disciples and 
The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's an important book. It's one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The reason I like Matthew's account of the Gospel, he was a tax collector, and he's really primarily speaking to the Jewish culture. So he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus Christ is the foretold, the promised Messiah. So all throughout Matthew, we will see uh, sections of, I don't know, throwbacks to Isaiah, right? Because these were Jews who understood, they knew the Old Testament. And so he's trying to piece together. Matthew is a great book to read if you want to understand how the Old Testament and New Testament come together. It's kind of like uh, when you're riding a bull and when you get thrown off the bull, landing on an air pad, rather than on rocks, you know what I mean? Unless you're like me and you don't get thrown off the bull, you know what I mean? Those of you that weren't here, just keep believing me, okay? I have found parts of my body I did not know existed after writing that. Matthew chapter eight, 23 through 27. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. God, I thank you so much for what you're doing in our heart and in our life. God, I ask in Jesus' name that you will stir among us. In Jesus' name we pray, let the church say amen. amen. I want you to take 60 to 90 seconds, meet somebody new, and then you may be seated. All right, well, I do have a sermon to preach, so I'm going to get started. No, I'm kidding. You guys are awesome. I brought a few pictures to share with you today on the subject of fear. There are six photos. They are snapshots, actually, of a haunted house, uh, of people walking through a haunted house. Now, I'm not endorsing haunted houses. Don't send me your emails. I mean, you can send whatever email you want. Just send it to uh, Cheryl at theexchangechurch.org. I'm not saying haunted houses are holy. I'm just saying I want to laugh at a couple of pictures, okay? These are people that, that went into a haunted house. By the way, not a demonic house, a spirit, spiritually demonic house. I'm saying like, you know, people that dressed up like, ooh, we're scary. And so they had these flash photography that caught their expression in, in several of the, the scares, okay? So picture number one, can we show that? Look at that. Wow, we've got humans scared and the back wall there. Um, why, why is he using her as a human shield? <laughs> That's what I don't know. I, I don't know. Lawrence, does long hair do that to you, son? No, no. Okay, I don't know. So next picture, picture two, picture two. Look at that. Jazz hands. Okay, next picture three. Look at <laughs> what? We call this the haunted train. 
That, that poor girl in the front, man, her face is so red. I am, I am scared for her blood pressure right now. All right, picture number four. Yeah, he is, he is watching. She has her hair covered. Next, next picture. Look at this. I guarantee you those guys walked in looking cool. I guarantee they had their act together, but not now. They weren't expecting that. Okay, is that picture number five? Okay, picture number six. This is my favorite one. Look, she looks like there's an exorcism happening right now in the the haunted house. That's, That's funny, right? That's funny. Come on, you got to admit, that's funny. Just seeing pictures of people. You know, like when you go to Six Flags and they catch you at just the wrong point when you weren't expecting the flash and you were, at, you know, you drooling was flying, drool was flying, or you picking your nose or whatever. That, that's funny. Those people weren't expecting that. And I, I wonder if in our moments of terror on earth, if sometimes heaven takes a snapshot in the moment and God and the angels gather around and they pop some popcorn and they just flip through the channels and this is, they say, look at Kathy right now. Look how terrified she is. She does not even know the army that is around the corner waiting for her. Look, look at Trey right now. Oh, he was just caught by surprise. He just looks ridiculous. He does not look like a son right now. He just looks absolutely ridiculous. Now, I'm not suggesting that heaven makes fun of us, but I am suggesting that our fear looks just as ridiculous as the photos that you and I just looked at of the people on the screen. I want to talk about fear. There are two types of fear that the Bible talks about. Uh, The first type is beneficial, and it's to be encouraged. Beneficial fear, and it's to be encouraged. It's the fear of the Lord. Everybody say, fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord Lord our God. Thank you for adding that. Fear of the Lord. Now, this isn't talking about being afraid. This isn't saying we should be afraid or tremble or scared of the Lord. This isn't somehow casting or painting a picture of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul keep. Should I die before I wake? You know what I mean? Who, why do we teach that prayer to our kids? Anymore? How scary and terrifying is that? Hi, little Susie. Listen, you might die tonight, but that's okay. Let's just pray for the Lord to take your soul. We don't need to be afraid of the Lord. I, I know there have been seasons, grow, well, seasons, as if it's a come and go. Early on in my Christianity, um, an encounter with the manifest presence of God could be scary to me. I remember at one point in my life, I felt like I saw an angel, and I'm pretty sure I took off running three blocks away. You know what I mean? It's like, I know they're angels, I know they're demons, but hey, not today. You know what I mean? Like, keep your invisible suit on today. I just don't, now I'm not that way anymore. Now I'm like, God, just show me, just open my eyes. I want to see everything that there is to see. Everything that you can see, I want to see. And so I I lean into that, but I have a, a fear of the Lord that's not afraid. I would define it as a reverence, respect, 
being in awe of God, placing a huge value on his power and his presence and his position in my life. That is what the fear of the Lord looks like. In other words, the fear of the Lord is a total acknowledgement of all that God is, which comes through knowing him and his attributes. Are you with me, church? That's the first type of fear. But I'm not preaching on that today. I will probably in this series, um, especially after this moment of worship that we just had. Because I don't know, I feel like we may have missed what just happened, honestly. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he came as a lamb. But he's coming back as a lion. And what happened in worship is the king walked in. Not Papa, not Daddy, not the Comforter, not the Big Brother. You know what I mean? Not, not all that, and, and that's, that stuff is good, and we need it. And I'm thankful for a God who wipes every tear away, but, but we encountered a moment as a church, and, and I don't know that corporately we responded in the right way to the King that walked in. So I think I need to speak on the fear of the Lord a little bit. Not, not the, the fear of being afraid. But what does it mean for you and I to respond to a king rather than Jesus, our friend? You understand that every attribute, this is totally not in my notes, okay, but I'm, can I just go here? Every attribute that God carries when we respond to him through that attribute, it unlocks another portion of his nature. So you can look at God as your friend every minute of every day, but you only unlock the benefits of the friend. And those are some amazing benefits. There are benefits of a king and divine royalty that settles on your house. And I'm, I am just wondering if some of us aren't living like paupers because we aren't responding to the royal priesthood. Only because I don't know what the Lord's trying to tell me right now. I'm going to move on. But he can disrupt my notes at any point. Is that all right? Okay. That's the first type is fear of the Lord. The second type of fear mentioned in the Bible is not beneficial. Look at your neighbor and say, no bueno. That means not good. It is a fear that is not good. It is the spirit of fear mentioned in 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7. If you don't have this verse memorized, hey, no worries, no harm, no foul, but I would put it in your back pocket as the next one you memorize. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for, the, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. The original translation says sober mind. So the opposite of fear is a sober mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound, sober 
mind. I, I remember when Jordan, you guys know Jordan, most of you do, except for our new family that's in with us today. Um, Jordan is my 17-year-old. We adopted he and his two siblings, oh gosh, 10 years ago in 2010. So going on 10 years ago, he's now 17. He's a drummer. Man, Jordan, man, I love you so much. And honestly, I'm not just saying this because he's in the room, but every day the Lord is just peeling back the onion of this young man, his heart, and I'm just seeing a new depth and a new layer of what God is doing in his life. And I'm, I'm just so impressed. I'm excited honestly, to call this guy my son. Now, ask me that 10 years ago, and I would have been like, oh, Jesus, what are you doing? Because at seven years old, he came to us with so much fear. I mean, his life was driven by fear. Now, you know, social scientists tell us that there are two things, and this aligns with scripture, by the way, uh, also not on my notes, so take this down because first service didn't hear it. You can tell them when you see them. There are two things that actually drive us into dysfunction. The two primary things that drive us into dysfunction are resentment or unforgiveness and fear. That aligns with scripture. Social scientists are telling us the same thing. And so Jordan had so much fear. His life was driven by fear at seven years old. I remember the first Halloween. So it would have been October of 2010. And we live in a neighborhood with two streets and really nice, well, for the most part, nice people and elderly, and so they're like, bring your kids over. We want to, you know, stop by. We want to give them some candy, and like they give your kids a whole pie. You know what I mean? Are you with me? And so um, it was the first year, and we were taking our kids, and the adoption had just become finalized August 31st of 2010, and the church launched in September of 2010, and so now we're in October, and we're at the end of our street in the cul-de-sac, and he's going from door to door. Little old Jordan, he's not, wasn't that tall at seven years old. He's a little thing, a little skinny thing. And he walks up to a door, and a dog comes running out barking. And Jordan takes off running, terror in his eyes, and he's like, oh my God! Now, Jordan has very nice, lovely, very big eyes. And so when he's running, it's just, you see all eyeballs, you know? And it's just... I like die a lot. He runs to me, runs past me, I think. Didn't even look to me for protection. Just ran, I think, uh, maybe to Lago Vista. And, and so he, he's just, and I'm just laughing. I think it's the most hilarious. I'm not laughing because he's scared, okay? I'm laughing just, it was such a bizarre reaction to a chihuahua. <laughs> Kidding, it was larger than a chihuahua, Jordan. But, you know, it was, it was an extreme reaction, do you know what I mean? Like you would expect the kid to be somewhat scared. It was extreme. And I just laughed for like ever on that until we sat down and had a conversation and got to the root of it. And the family that, that he was born into used to have guys sitting around on the couch watching TV where kids were just the annoyance. And so if Jordan wouldn't listen and go get a shower or go to bed, they would let loose a very ferocious dog, hold him on a leash while he's barking, growling, showing teeth at my son Jordan, and then finally let the leash go so it chases Jordan to go where he needed to go. Of course Jordan had fear. It's not funny anymore to me. I, I remember he wouldn't take a shower. Uh, ladies, he does now. He's 17, single, and on the prowl, and he smells good every day. He takes a shower, 
But he wouldn't at age seven. He was scared. And he would scream. And I remember he would scream, I see faces. I see faces. He, he said he would see faces in the shower curtain. Of course, when he says that, you know, and I'm a pastor, Carrie and I, we're, we're leaders back then in another church in College Station. When he says that, instantly the hair on my neck stands up. I'm like, well, you, you, you see what? <laughs> I see faces in the shower curtain. Well, I'd had enough because I'd heard that argument night after night after night after night. Finally, one day I lost it. And I'm in the kitchen, and he's pulling that mess again, not wanting to take a shower, saying, Daddy, I see faces. I'm scared. And so I scream. I'm not sure I've ever apologized to you this, Jordan, so I'm sorry. But I screamed across the house, and I go, You see this face? This is the face you should be scared of. And it didn't work. <laughs> but Cheryl Biggs, who happens to be on team with us, she has been a part of our family for a while, was watching him. In College Station, Carrie and I would do ministry things. She'd come over and watch the kids. She put on a piece of paper, 2 Timothy 1.7, and affixed it to his bunk bed. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And he said it every morning, and he said it every night. And let me tell you, it wasn't long before the fear subsided. And let me just make something very clear to you today. I don't care how good you are at sitting knee to knee and eye to eye and heart to heart with your kid and saying all of this logic as to why they shouldn't be afraid of the plastic shower curtain. There is something that when the word of God is imparted and activated in a situation, the word of God will accomplish what logic can never do. You've been terrified like I've been terrified. I've been, I've been scared to death. Airplanes. Anybody ever been afraid of airplanes? Anybody afraid of heights? No, you're not. You're afraid of dying. You're not afraid of the altitude. You know, it's not like you're, you walk and you get to 1,000 altitude and you're like, oh my God, I'm so scared of 1,000. No, you're scared of the height that if you fall, you're dead, yeah. right? We, we have fear. Micah, my son, uh, he's learning to be a pilot and he was on his third lesson in Australia and the guy, Mr. Miyagi, they call him, and he acts just like Mr. Miyagi of Karate Kid, He's flying the plane and he nose dives the plane, turns off the engine and he's looking at Micah and he's yelling, what do you do now, Micah? What do you do now? What do you do? Make a decision. What do you do? We're going to crash, Micah. What do you do? Micah said, dad, I couldn't think. I couldn't say anything. I was scared to death. I couldn't even talk. And the guy finally, at the very last minute, turns on the ignition and pulls the plane out of a nosedive. I would have asked for a refund and a change of clothes. <laughs> Fear happens. I, I know that you are, you are just so sanctified and you look just so much like Jesus that you don't even allow those words to come out of your mouth that you are afraid. But can I just tell you, fear will creep up on you. Right out of the middle of nothing, you, you will be going great. And all of a sudden fear will sneak up on you. You did not see it coming. So what are you going to do? 
What are you going to do? What are you going to do when fear creeps up on you? What are you going to do when you get that report from the doctor? What are you, you going to do when that, that husband, that wife, they file for divorce and you are blindsided because you didn't see it coming? What are you going to do when you get the pink slip at work and you get laid off? Come on, church, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when fear comes knocking at your door and you are left speechless and suddenly hopeless? I want to take you through our text. I'm going to have to move quick, but I want to shift. I want to shift methods for a moment. Can we just have a little Bible study together? Is that all right? I'm not, I, I might get up and preach here and there, but I really want to uncover in Matthew 8 and share with you the way the Lord revealed it to me in my studied time. So that's okay with you if I just kind of take it verse by verse? All right, so let's do this. So do you remember what the text was, Matthew 8? 18 through 22. So it started out, it said, then Jesus got in the boat, right? Let's read the first verse, 18. Then he got in the boat and his disciples followed him. Everybody say the word then. When I see the word then, I immediately know I don't want to start reading in that verse. I've taught you this before, right? You may not remember, but I've taught you. When you see then, I'm a, I'm a computer scientist uh, from Texas A&M University. Whoop! And there are these simple things called um, if, then, else, right? If this happens, then this happens. Are you with me? Put it in some other terms. Hey, Johnny, if you don't do your homework, then you don't play video games, right? Then. When you see the word then, that tells you you need to back up. There's a precursor to that verse that weighs heavily on that verse, okay? So I tricked you. We started out on the wrong verse, verse 18. We're not going to do that. In your notes, though, you have Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Do you see that in the notes that I provided? And then I gave you Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Let's back up from 18. Thank you. Okay, I must have just read it oddly. Okay, that's not actually... That is 23, right? The... the uh, I don't have glasses. Three, okay, 323. All right. So let's go up a verse to 22, right? If 23 says then, let's go to 22. 22 says, but Jesus, all right? Circle the word but in your notes, but Jesus. If there's a but, that could be a big but. Is that a big but, small but? We don't know, but we got to back it up one verse, okay? We can't start on the but. You never start on the but, Right? That makes sense. You don't need to major in English to know that but is the middle of something. Okay, verse 26. He replied, circle replied. He replied, this is what I do in my study. Okay, I don't want to start there. He replied to what? I don't want the answer to a question. I don't know what's being asked. 20. I'm sorry. Oh, I see what happened. Okay, 22 is but. 21. Another disciple. Another disciple should tell you, I need something more. So circle another disciple. Um, 20, Jesus replied. 
What do you reply to? We've got to read verse 19. It says, then. We're back at then again. Good grief. Are we going to go back to Genesis 1-1? Who knows? So I'm going to back up to verse 18. Verse 18, it says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him. Okay, this is where Matthew starts his thought. Now, you could even confirm this more if you want. Go up another verse, which is not on our screens. You can do this at home. Go up a verse, and Matthew is quoting Isaiah. Now, I told you, oh gosh, I told you that he's right. he writes in Matthew to the Jews. So he quotes a lot of the prophets, uh, the prophet Isaiah in the book of Matthew. And in the verse before 18, so verse 17, he ends his quote with a quote. Isaiah, so we know he's starting a new thought, okay? So if we're going from 18 to 27, is it all right if I just walk you verse by verse by verse and tell you what it all means? Okay, I've only got two points for you today. Um, so don't worry, I don't have a lot of notes for you to take, but I want you to understand every verse that we read because it makes a difference, okay? We're exposing fear today. Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Why did Jesus cross to the other side of the lake? Why did the chicken cross the road? I don't know. Like, we don't know for sure. There are some debates on this. Some people suggest that Jesus is crossing to the other side of the lake because he's finished with his work on that side of the lake. And there are people that need to know about Jesus on the other side of the lake, right? That's plausible. It's possible. You can believe that if you want to. No harm, no foul. However, we see in Matthew 14 that there is a trend that is set by Jesus where he sees a crowd. It's at the end of doing miracles, which this is at the end of doing miracles. If you look back at chapter 7 um, and the beginning of 8, he's done many miracles. So he withdraws to rest and connect with his disciples. Okay, this is a tradition, not a tradition. This is a trend that Jesus does. So we're going to make that assumption that he's going across the lake to rest and to connect with his disciples. Now look at verse 18. Verse 18 is an order from God, from Jesus to the disciples. Verse 18, he orders to cross to the other side of the lake. He orders it. But then there are one, two, three, four, four verses before verse 23 that we started our text on when they actually got in the boat. So in verse 18, Jesus orders it, but then there are four verses before it's obeyed. This means something in Scripture. Whenever you see the start of something and the end of something, yet there's something seemingly unrelated in the middle, Oh, it's related. You can guarantee it's related. It's just like watching a sitcom that has two parallel storylines. And you see, oh, Lizzie is in love with this person. Oh, Bob is trying to get a new job. And then they all converge at the end. Do you know what I mean? It bounces back and forth. Because in the 18th verse, there's an order, but it doesn't actually happen until the 23rd verse. There's something in the next four verses that you and I need to grasp to be able to understand what's going on. Verse 19. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Here's what we know, Greg, about Matthew. Matthew 
never references to Jesus through the eyes of the disciples by the name teacher. He only uses the name Lord. So the fact that this man, this scribe, a teacher of the law, is calling Jesus teacher, that tells us that this man is not a disciple. He's a would-be disciple. He's a could-be disciple. Maybe he's a should-be. He's a woulda, coulda, should-be disciple, right? He is not a current disciple. The teacher of the law approaches the teacher because he knew that Jesus had something that he didn't. Now, it seems best to understand this verse, um, to understand that this scribe is offering to become a disciple, yet he doesn't know the cost it's going to take to follow Jesus. Because in the next verse, verse 20, Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What does that mean? I don't know. No, I do know. It's confusing. It's, it's actually a, a very debated verse in Scripture. Many people believe that this points to the fact that Jesus is homeless. Uh, you know, a homeless Jesus. A social justice Jesus. Um, but really, the Matthean Jesus, the, the Jesus in Matthew is not homeless. I mean, we know that already. There, there are at least eight references to home for Jesus. In Matthew 4, when Jesus leaves the house of his parents, he goes and he, he gets a residence by Capernaum. He has an ocean house, a beach house. Carrie, you'll like that. He, Jesus has a beach house in Capernaum. In uh, Matthew 19, I believe, 19 verse 1 and 19 verse 18, 17, 19, and there it references Jesus went to the house. The house. Now, if you're talking to your spouse or your kids, you're saying, hey, I'll meet you at the house. That doesn't mean your neighbor's house, right? It doesn't mean granny's house. It means your house. Hey, what time are you going to be at the house? Oh, I'm going to be at the house at this time. So in, in the book of Matthew, whenever you see the house, it's Jesus's house. It's the house of, of Jesus where his ministry was based out of. Okay, so if it's not saying that Jesus is homeless, what is it, what is it really saying? What does Matthew mean? What Matthew is really trying to say is that this aristocrat is wanting to join an outcast gang. Like, hey man, you've got it easy. Do you know what you're wanting to get yourself into? Like, I know you think I'm all that. I know you think that I'm special. I can tell by the way you're calling me teacher. But, but just like the birds of the air. So Jesus used the, uses this paradoxical analogy saying, you think I'm all that, but I'm really like a bird and like a fox that has no place to nest, no place to lay its head. What Jesus was saying in this verse is it's going to be really uncomfortable to follow me. You're a could be, should be, want to be disciple, but you're asking for something you don't know what you're asking for. Because you're going to be an alien on this earth. There is no place to lay your head to rest from the weight of the responsibility that you carry for the kingdom. Then verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, this is an, another 
disciple. It actually tells us he's a disciple. Um, so, so we know that he's not a could-be disciple. He's a current disciple, but he's asking to go and bury his father. So what he's really doing is he's asking for a leave of absence from discipleship. He's like, hey, Jesus, I love you, but I need to go bury my father. Now, what Jesus says next might come as a shock to you, and it may seem like he's really insensitive, but, but let's understand what this guy is asking first. Potentially, because we are talking about the Jewish custom, he's not just asking to go dig a hole in the ground and bury his father. He's asking for the four to seven day process of mourning for his father's death. Oh, but also an extra year because on the annual celebration of his dad's death, they rebury the bones and they, they mourn again another four to seven days. So that's a, that's a year. Oh, wait a minute. Be, before that year commitment, let's back up five to seven to eight years because dad's getting a little old and he gets up from the floor a little bit slower than he used to. It sounds a lot like a 45-year-old I know. Like back in Jewish custom, once dad started to age a little bit, you were committed to him from there on out every day until he passes and a year after he passes. So, so this guy wasn't just asking, hey, I need to go bury a dead man real quick. What, what he was really saying is, hey, I want to be your disciple but I need to handle all of my cultural obligations first. And Jesus responds in the next verse. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And this is not saying that, that you and I shouldn't have family emergencies and that family shouldn't be a priority and shouldn't be important. Listen, the message of Jesus champions the family. You won't find a pastor that believes in that more. Like the message of the Bible champions marriage as defined by the Bible more than anything else in the world. Like Jesus loves the family. But he said, let the dead bury the dead. The gist of what he's saying is to you and I as a disciple, as a disciple, you and I should challenge anything or thought, or desire, or cultural expectation, or familiar expectation that would delay or derail our discipleship. Do you follow that? That's a lot of words. In other words, to simplify it, you can write this on your mirror. There's no time for trauma drama. Like sometimes life like there's real trauma that you and I experience and encounter. There's no denying that. But we ain't got time for the trauma drama. We get too wrapped up in the, the drama. You know, are you alive out there? You hear me? Like we experience trauma and we build that up in our mind and we, we look at that so and we hold it up and we evaluate it like we're just staring it down. The problem is what we behold, we become. We don't have time in the process of discipleship, of becoming like Christ for trauma, drama. We have time for trauma and healing, just not trauma and drama. The next verse. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. So here Jesus is moving from crowd to committed. 
the, the journey actually starts right now. So the command was in verse 18. Verse 23 is the obedience. So what did we see in those four verses? Those four verses are all about discipleship. It shows us two examples of a could-be disciple and a disciple out of convenience. And because that is sandwiched between the story of going on the sea and the boat, that means that there's an undercurrent in the next verse about discipleship. Is this making sense? I, I'm, I'm wrapping up, I promise. Is it at least better than the dentist? I know it is. 24. Suddenly, a furious storm came out upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Storm here in the original language means a shaking. So it, it doesn't mean like um, a hurricane. It doesn't mean uh, the original language isn't referring to a storm that you would find on the water per se. It just means a shaking. Now, I would think, I would imagine at least in my estimation that if you're on a boat in a shaking, it would be worse than being in a house with a shaking. Carrie and I went to Port Aransas a couple of weeks ago. And we were looking for Airbnb, seeing where to stay. And we saw um, on Airbnb, Carrie called me and she was like, hey, I found a houseboat that we could rent. And so I pulled up the weather and it said there's supposed to be a storm. I said, no, thank you. Like, that sounds cool, but no, I'm not going to do that on, on the beach in a storm. It turns out the houseboat wasn't actually even in the water. It was set up on pier and beam. And there also wasn't a storm. So I don't know, fear gripped me. But... But it's amazing to me that Jesus is in a boat when the storm comes through and the shaking comes through and he's not awake. Verse 25, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The situation may be terrible, but the disciples' fear is a mark of little faith. Here's, here's where we need to expose faith for fear for a moment in verse 26. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The reason they were afraid is because they lost sight of who was in the boat. You see, you and I can elevate what is against us higher than who is with us. And when we do that, fear begins to develop. You have little faith. I love in Matthew 6, by the way, faith and God's help is not tied together. You don't have to have a lot of faith for God to help you. Somebody needs to hear this. Look at me, look at me, look at me. If you take nothing else away, take this. You don't have to have a lot of faith for God to help you. Those are not combined. Matthew tells us that in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, let's see. Why do you worry about the clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
you who seemingly has no faith, God is gonna take care of your needs. We often tie his provision to our faith and that's, that's actually not accurate. Because God takes care of us not based on who you are. He takes care of us based on who he is. And that doesn't change based on our fluctuating faith. But our faith is connected to something. Listen, our faith is connected to something. The first point on your paper, I want you to write this down. I'm going to send you home with two points. Faith and fear are linked. Faith and fear are linked. God's help is not linked to faith but your fear is. The lower your faith, the bigger your fear. And you remember that undercurrent I told you about discipleship? What we see here in verse 26, he says, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? The undercurrent or in those four verses of discipleship. If you picture with me for a moment a balance, and in one side it is faith, and the other is fear, right? As faith increases, fear decreases. As fear increases, faith decreases. But the balance being is what we find in those four verses. It's the undercurrent that faith and fear sit on. Faith and fear are directly linked to intimacy with God. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I started out this message today describing two types of fear. The good fear, the fear of the Lord, that I described as a reverence, respect, being in awe of God, placing a huge value on the power and presence of God. But what if I told you today that your fear ends where your fear of the Lord begins? Romans 8, 14 through 15. And I'll leave you with this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. For the analyst in the house, I gave you some further study that you can do on your own. For the artist in the house, I gave you a psalm that's one of my favorites that talks about this. It's the end of your notes. I would love for you to go deeper this week. And let's begin to strip, strip off the mask of fear. Will you stand to your feet this morning? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we just thank you that our intimacy with you, the, the discipleship, us becoming like you, the fellowship between you and us, God, it is the undercurrent of faith and fear. It takes us from the crowd to the committed, but from the committed to the stable. There's so many of us in this room facing instability right now. Mental instability, 
right now. So God, we lean into the intimacy of our creator and we allow you to bring new life to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.